With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi there, I'm Kendra Adachi, and I host the Lazy Genius Podcast, a show that helps you be a genius about the things that matter and lazy about the things that don't. But here's the kicker. You get to decide what matters, not me. I'm not here to tell you what to do. I'm here to give you a new way to see. Episodes are around 20 minutes and are full of practical, helpful information, as well as a lot of permission slips to do what makes sense for you. New episodes drop every Monday and cover a broad range of topics from laundry and getting dinner on the table to finding work-life balance and organizing your inbox. So I invite you to give the Lazy Genius Podcast a listen. Together, let's stop doing it all for the sake of doing what matters. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com Welcome to the relaunch of the Strange Boat Podcast. I'm Keith Arthur, and we've had our bottom scraped and engine serviced, so we're now ready to run and run. And who better to help us push off in the nicest possible way than Nick Speed? Speed is on a run that seems to have lasted for several years and is one of the most feared match anglers on the circuit. So, pull thrusters on. Here we go. Welcome aboard. It's good to see you, buddy. How are you? Hi, Keith. Nice to meet you again. But, you, you know, what I just said there is, is quite true. I think you're, you're on a bit of a powerful run, but let's, uh, let's not um, get that far in yet. Um, where were you from and, and, and how did you get into your fishing? Yeah, good question, really. Uh, I'm originally from Cambridge, lived in Cambridge, born in Cambridge, moved up to Sheffield when I was seven, and that's actually when I started fishing. So one of my friends at school, I'll never forget it, he had a rod in his garage, and I went, oh, are you into fishing? He went, yeah, I'll tell you one day. So at the time when I lived with my parents, uh, Millhouses Park in Sheffield, uh, we went down there catching bullheads, never forget it. Um, and I caught my first, yeah, I caught my first fish was a bullhead. My first proper fish was a rainbow trout. 
Um, and I'll never forget that. I was, I was, you know, basically that's where I started fishing on the river sheaf, fishing for bullheads and rainbow trout with a little rucksack and a little road walking along with a pint of maggots. Uh, and if we, we didn't have any money or didn't get a chance to go to the tack shop or to tin of worms, and that's where it all started from, really. So how on earth did rainbow trout get in the river sheaf? I, I don't know, but there's quite a lot of them. Really? Uh, yeah, unbelievable. Um, but above, there's a Aberdale Industrial Hamlet, and it was a lake there that used to stock with trout. Oh, yeah. yeah. And I think that they obviously got flooded occasionally in the company yeah. there. Yeah, they're good escapees. Like my, my local, one of my local rivers here, the Wandle. I used to live in Wimbledon. I had this fantastic river running through Wimbledon. They had all yeah. beds of ranunculus waving in the stream, and it's a chalk stream. But it had been so badly polluted for such a long time, there were no fish in it. Yeah. But they say so the first fish they stocked in it were brown trout. Yeah. And they put them in as sort of miners' canaries. You know, they put them in to see if they survived in cages, and they did. And then they put in barbel and chub. There's everything in there but predators. There's a few perch, but they've appeared from nowhere. But you can still go and catch wild, wild brown trout in a, in a London postcode, which is, you know, SW19, SW20. You can catch wild brownies on fly from a chalk stream where one of the most famous fly anglers to ever live invented the dry fly. So anyway, that's enough that's of the wandle hit. We'll, we'll do a podcast on the wandle another time, I expect. In fact, I'm looking, I've got someone in mind who can do that for me. But anyway, that's, that's <laughs> trout, trout rivers. I used, to, I used to, anyway, I'll tell you about the trout on Nick from uh, Rickman's with another day. Um, so how did you develop from uh, rainbow trout, um, which are a non-native invasive species in a manner of speaking, to, to being... And I'm, I'm going to make you blush now. It looks like you're blushing anyway because you've had 10 minutes in the sun today. To, <laughs> to develop into what is genuinely a top-class match angler. Uh, I think passion for the sport to start with. Um, I think all of us that are involved in this beautiful sport, uh, it becomes part of you. So as a young kid, I wanted to learn more and I progressed through time from venturing to different venues and I remember one of the and you'll remember this as well uh my first ever big reservoir was Dam Flask which is literally very near to my house so that was the first place I've ventured proper wild water and uh, I suppose it's the unknown of what you're going to hook especially as a young kid that, that excitement and I'll never forget that's where I caught my first ever bream and I still remember to this day when I hooked into this fish with an eight foot winkle picker and it come to the surface and I was like, oh my God, look at the size of this fish. Yeah. Uh, that in itself just sums up why we love it. And then I ventured to Woodsbury Reservoir uh, and gradually I started getting more competitive. I started to learn an awful lot and I fished my first ever open match at the age of 11. And I said to my parents, I says, I really want to fish an open match. And you remember these two names, Brian and Pat Needham. Yeah. Um, they ran, ran the matches. And if it wasn't Brian and Pat Needham, it was Keith Ashmore. Um, I remember Keith very well. So I went up to Dam Flask and I had three, I had a three pound, I can't remember the exact weight I had. I think it was about three pound 11, but I had a three pound eight, eight ounce perch <laughs> and three or four little roach on a maggot feeder on my eight foot Silstar Winkle picker. Um, and that, I won the match, and that was it. I, I was hooked then. Um, and I went literally from a young kid straight into the open match scene. And around Yorkshire at that time, there were some really big matches because 
you know, the the, um, the evolution of commercials wasn't even thought of it then. Uh, oh, this so, about mid late eighties, I suppose, mid late eighties. I remember the Silver Star Wings. Exactly. Exactly. You're looking at mid mid eighties, and like I remember the Pennine Championships at Damflask, which was an annual event. There used to be two hundred to three hundred anglers in this event, um, and every every match that you entered, you were queuing for half an hour, three quarters of an hour to get a draw. Yeah, with that many there. Uh, yeah, you know, those days. I mean, it wasn't quite like that down here because. Sheffield, I mean, I, I, I always consider Sheffield, Doncaster and Rotherham as the angling triangle. Yeah. Now, if, if you draw lines there, you've got probably more anglers in that bit than in any other um, area of the whole of the country. I mean, you can extend it up. I don't know if Barnsley is within that. Barnsley is a bit further north, isn't it? And Leeds. But if you Yorkshire. Yorkshire is the angling county, isn't it? it, it there's just so many people there. Probably from its industrial um, history where, where, you know, if you wanted to go out on a Sunday, which you went out on a Sunday because, you know, that was your one day off of work after having taken the missus shopping on Saturday, you were out on Sunday and, and your works at a club. Yeah. And they run a coach. That's was true. Like, well, I still call them sharabangs and the Oxford English Dictionary dropped the word sharabang a few years ago, much to my disgust. I didn't write to them, I was going to. Um, but they, they, yeah, they dropped the word sharing. So you, you, you went on coaches, and and the A fifty seven was like a metal road, wasn't it? Going then it was all coaches all the way to the Trent and the fence. You missed out that bit though by by being a match angler so an open match angler so quickly. I did, and I remember when as soon as I passed my driving test, the first venue I ventured to was with them. Yeah. and uh, and that was just after the trains had really stopped. So when you remember this, Keith. And I've been told many stories about the trains that used boatloads of anglers from Yorkshire yeah. on the train down to the Witham. But when I started fishing the, the waterways down there, like the uh, Sibsey Trader, the West Fen Drain, the River Witham, the River Welland, the turnouts were just ridiculous how many people were. It was just so popular. Um, and, uh, you know, to be... A, and. As a young kid, I had a, a bit of a... I, I learned a lot by myself, but I also had an angler called Ben Goffin. Now, he uh, he won the King of Clubs in Ireland twice, and he li- literally lived just down the road from Downflask. And he took me under his wing and didn't necessarily teach me an awful lot about catching fish, but taught me about mindset uh, and how to approach a big match. And nobody remembers second year to win it. This That's what you got to think. Uh, and I, I, you know, I always, I've always got, I always had a lot of time for Ben for that reason because he, he really, he put my mind in the right attitude to do well in these matches. Um, and it just progressed from then. Uh, you know, I think we could talk forever about how good the venues were then, yeah. and how they've changed. Um, and we all say, you know, commercials have ruined fishing, which they haven't. It was just. Um, I would put it down to how the evolution of nitrates getting into the water, um, you know, and agriculture, farmers using stronger fertilisers, and then all of a sudden the, the rhythm went really clear. Yeah. Then the weed grew. And then, of course, there's still as many fish in the rhythm, but they're harder to catch because the water's too clear. And you can't fish properly for them because there's weed everywhere. Exactly. And, yeah, and, and, and they've... It's like cause fish thrive on neglect. Unfortunately, fisheries don't. 
And where we've left the fisheries alone, I, I can look out my window and see the trees on the banks of the semi-tidal Thames. Yeah. And we used to run 60 peggers from Hamcar Park to the bottom of Peachham Meadow. Now I don't reckon you could get 15 anglers in there. That's true. Yeah. And that means all the anglers have got lots more room. So the weights look fantastic compared to what they were 40 years ago when we ran these matches every other week because we have to coincide with the tides, of course. Um, yeah. You can't fish an uptide down there. It's almost impossible. It's too fast and comes up too quickly. And, and the banks is quite steep, so you can't sort of shimmy up. And you get about, even here on the semi tide you get about a 12-foot rise on some tides in, yeah. in two hours. So you can't sort of get, the, get up that bit. Um, but, yeah, we, we, we used to get, if, if you had 25 pounds, you'd probably win. And that would be like 140 days, 150 days. And you'd probably win. You didn't always, um, but sometimes £18 would win. And then in 1992, I won with £5.15. And something yeah. was wrong. Yeah. And after that, it, there were cormorants. We blamed the cormorants. It wasn't the cormorants because fish will come back. There's That's billions true. and billions of fish there, and loads of Xander that weren't there before. But you're right. The, 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 the condition of the rivers stopped us fishing them. That has allowed the fish to thrive. The Trent is a classic example. You know, yep. was it 1997? There will never be another match worth fishing on this river when there was, I don't know, goodness knows how many blanks on a national. And, yep. and, and we were all wrong. We were all wrong. Um, yep. But by not going there, by neglecting those fish, they will come back. And if you can only get a match... And the pegging now with plenty of room, like you get four old pegs on the trend. When I remember being pegged eight yards at Burton Joyce, you know, we don't now. And, and you suppose, can go and catch loads and loads of fish. I suppose how it, it advocates how powerful nature is yeah. and how it evolves and comes back on its own. And the trend now is just so consistently good. The matches are good. Everyone's catching loads of fish. Um. But like what I said earlier, you have to pick and choose. There's so much choice now. You have to pick and choose. And in my progression as a young kid, uh, I was a chef. I worked at, um, as soon as I left school, I then did a lot of chefing. I then got a professional chef's diploma. I worked for Raymond Blanc. I worked in three Michelin star restaurants. I worked really, really hard. And I had very little time to actually go fishing. One day a week. I'd have one day a week to go fishing. And I actually, I couldn't wait to go fishing. So in a bizarre kind of way, I was so enthusiastic to go fishing. And all I was thinking about whilst I was working was going fishing on my day. <laughs> as much as I love cooking. Um, and I worked really hard as a chef. Um, and I also, at the time, I was doing quite well in my fishing. And then it just progressed where... Um, I worked for the university for 11 years as head chef and a chef manager. And then they closed the halls of residence down that I managed. And uh, basically I had to take redundancy. And, uh, and that was my point where I, I said to my parents, Do you know what, I'm going to try and give, a, uh, give myself a chance of becoming a full-time angler. And their immediate response was, Nick, just get another job. And I went, no, because I want to give it a go because if I failed, then I've at least tried. And um, and it was that time where coaching was just kicking in. So I, I set myself up as a coach. Um, and I also got a, an invitation to become a consultant for Shimano. And literally within a year, everything happened for the better of me. 
Um, and that was the kind of like the platform that I used to get where I am now, you know, without the help of my sponsors, I wouldn't be where I am now to give me that uh, opportunity to have faith in me for me to go fishing full-time and work hard at what I do as a full-time angler now. Yeah. My, my mental list of questions, which I've got written down on a piece of paper, um, <laughs> have got your sponsors and your sponsorships next and your consultancies and everything next. Um, after another question I was going to ask, but I'll change it. And, and we'll talk about that, about Shimano and Dynamite Baits as well, I think. And and, is, and, and anyone else, is there anyone else as well? I've got a few sponsors that really look after me. So, of course, my main sponsors are what we've mentioned. Uh, we've got Rick Tyler at Hot Box. Um, oh, of course, yeah. I mean, what, you know, absolutely love that box. Um, I'm so proud to be sat on it all the time. It's just so practical. Ticks all the boxes for what I do as an angler. Uh, Malman, Floats, uh, Willy Worms. And I've got a few people that help me along the way. But as I say, my main sponsors are Shimano and Dynamo. That's good. So you've got Tackle, Bait, and something to sit on cover. That's about, once you've got those done um, and, and you, you do a good job, you get a bit of coaching and, and you get the old win. And the great thing about wins in match fishing, whether you're a professional or not, you don't pay tax on them. Unless they're sponsored matches where you're supposed to, but if you can work out that anyway, that's another story. But that's great, and, that, and that's yeah. I, I know there were lots of arguments about it years ago, but uh, yeah. because it's a sweepstake and providing the money you pay in is what's paid out, then the, the law of the land says there's no tax in it. Obviously, you know you're way up there in the in the fifty percent bracket with all your sponsorships, but that's how it goes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I love reading your stuff on, on social media, Facebook in particular. I, I think you, you write brilliantly and you explain things brilliantly. And you seem to have developed, uh, and I may be wrong here, but you, you mentioned about an eight-foot winkle pickle where you first started your match fishing. And now whenever I read, you're, you're flinging some kind of method feeder um, under the bank to the next platform, to an island, to the middle of the lake. You are... And I know you fish the float as well, and I know you fish the pole as well, but you make that feeder work for you, don't you? That's very true. Um, I think we all have our favourite ways of catching fish. And I think um, to become a good angler, you have to understand how the fish want to be caught. No, they don't want to be caught. <laughs> how they're prepared to eat. Yeah, that's, that's true. Um, however, there are... yeah. There are certain techniques that you can manage in the right way to work with versatility, regardless of where you go, regardless of the terrain, the depth, the conditions, which is a massive part. And we can always go into that regarding, I follow the weather an awful lot. And I think a lot of top anglers do, and you do. Um, the, the weather dictates how you approach the fish and how, at what, fish the, what depth the fish want to feed at. And especially when it comes to feeder fishing, that's where you have to be critical in making those key decisions because your bait is always on the bottom. Um, so yeah, the method feed is an approach that I've always made, seen to make work because I understand how it needs to be used on each day. And there, there are also very few days where you can't use your chosen method. That's you know, true. When, when, when you go on a pole, and it's blowing 30 miles an hour left to right. 
you ain't going to pole fish past about four metres, not successfully. And your float's going to be drawn about, the water's going to start towing and it's going to move your bait unnaturally. You know, it's your your float drags your bait along, not your bait trundling like it would on a river. And that's not very natural. And, And you can try as hard as you like. You're not going to stop it. When you, if you only took a feed rod with you, you would be able to feed fish in any condition possible. That's true. I'll I tell you a typical example, Keith, was at Lindome, one of the first lakes that was very, very popular was the Oasis, which was a, a canal lake. Um, now it doesn't get used in matches because it's, uh, it's had lodges built on it and it's there for the residents. But at the time, you know, you get to this new lake and everyone's obsessed. If it's 16 metres wide, let's fish 16 metres of pole across. And Tommy was the founder for this, Tommy Pickering. And he'd put his box down and fish a method feeder across, win the match. And I kind of like followed suit with that. Um, And there was like myself and Tommy would be the only anglers in a 50, 60 peg match with two rods set up and an edge rig. And we'd be fishing a method feeder across whilst everybody else would be shipping a pole across. Now, the interesting thing was we always caught better quality fish because there was no pole over the heads of those wise fish. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, it made a little bit noise, a bit more noise uh, entering the water, but it made the fish feel safe because there was no poles over the heads. And now they come to a plop as well, though, Nick, don't they? They don't mind a plop. Fish is, you know, they, they only get their food from two sources, one digging up off the bottom and two, it drops in from the sky. True. And also, one thing you've always got to remember is 90% of fishing commercials, if not all of them, are originally from a stock pond and they associate food and the, the entering of food with noise, yep. whether it be a timer or a farmer coming along with a tractor feeding the pellets into the lake twice a day, they associate noise with food. And I'll tell you a very interesting story, and I think you can relate to this, Keith. You'll love this. And I was stood with Neil Grantham on one of his new stock lakes. He's breeding fish in this lake to rear up, to stop into the rest of the complex. And he said, look, there's 38,000 F1s in this lake. And it was like a, like, like a mill pond. There was no signs of fishing whatsoever. And I said, there's nothing in it. And he went, Nick, I'm telling you, there's 38,000 F1s in this lake. He says, watch this, I'll show you. And we were stood next to a timer, a feeding timer. So he literally, t- and they come on twice a day. So he literally flipped the switch. And there was a delay between the motor running and the pellets getting fired out onto the lake. Now, as soon as he pressed that button and the engine started running, creating a vibration, the whole lake erupted with fish. And there were no pellets hitting the surface, but they knew it was feeding yeah. time. Yeah. That's how important noise is to the fish. Yeah, yeah. There's no no question about it. No question. And, and you know, you, you think about bowling it and with Bloodworm and Joker. You go to a venue that's never had Bloodworm and Joker before, never had a bombardment with ground bait, put 15 balls in, drop a floating on top of it, it goes straight under. That's right. You know, in yeah. fact, that happened to me on a match on the canal when we used to have matches on the canal by London Zoo where I've put 10 balls in at the start of the match, dropped the rig in, the float's gone under. I've had a roach weighed three and a half ounces. I know it weighed three and a half ounces. It's the only fish caught on the entire section. And it was first drop after, you know, 10 really? babby's heads going in. It was just yeah. un- unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. So so I'm, I've always been one of those that it really enjoys catching fish, but I enjoy catching them my way, like you do. And my way is to watch a float. So, I, 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 but... 
if I ledger, I'm likely to win because I'm doing it because that's what needs to be done that day. Yeah. In, in yeah. extremis, I will chuck a feeder out and I know how to do it. And, you know, I was around when block M feeders were invented and, and two of my mates invented the M stack frame feeder that eventually became a method feeder. Um, in fact, I've just written a piece about that for Anglin Times. That's another story. And um, so I, I was around at that time. So, you know, I, I, I've, I've done me, done me time. And I just prefer, you know, like some people prefer fly fishing. I love seeing a float go out and go down and, you know, go under and stuff. But, you know, I can understand the skill and it's an entirely different skill in feeder fishing. But boy, oh boy, what a skill. It's not so much the striking and hooking the fish. It's putting the bait and making a rig that the fish are going to virtually hook themselves so you can just pick up the rod and wind them in. No disturbance. You lose very little you don't foul hook very many most of the time. And it's just a great way, a, a, a very productive way of fishing. And I really admire people that are good at it. And, it's, and it, it's all those little elements, Keith. Add them together and you've got the perfect way of catching fish. Mm. On uh, uh, Over a period of, let's say, you know, when it comes to a consistent approach of catching fish. Yeah. And I say, I say in, in a way, if you think about it, that it is the footprint for a lot of approaches. And praise the Lord to Andy Finlay, who invented the, the method feeder originally. Yeah. When you look at, um, you know, any kind of feeding approach, let's say, for example, um, kinder potting pellets and making sure your hook bait's in the centre of them, feeding ground bait down the edge, making, your hook, making sure your hook bait's in the centre of your bait, it all comes down to the method feeder principle. Yeah. Yep. There used to be, um, I used to run a tackle shop in South London for my sins. And um, we had a group of customers used to come in from one particular fishery. And this fishery, the only way, only way to catch the carp, which were wild carp, and if a, a four pounder was a monster, was to get a bunch of maggots, put it in a bowl of ground bait, and throw the ground bait in. No float, no ledger weight or anything. And yeah. every so often, a carp would, would pick up the, the, the maggots as they fell out the ground bait and, and hook itself. And, and, it, and, and I think that was 1978, 79, I found out about that. Yeah. Why didn't I invent the message feeder? It's crazy, isn't it? Yeah, and then right. Mickey, Mickey Ems and Ken Staten come out with the, the frame feeder. And then I think it, a chap called Dave, Dave Howe or Dave Huff in, in Leicester made the first method type feeder, but it was a length of line tied to elastic on a Paternoster rig yeah. with the hook buried in the feeder. The fin saw it and the rest, as they say, is history. He cut yeah. one side out of it because the three-sided one, it could land on the wrong side and the bait would be buried under the feeder. And yeah, you had the cobra feeders and, and, and so it goes, but it's, a, it's an amazing story and, and all credit to the fin, who's a bloody good bricklayer. You wouldn't expect a bloody good bricklayer to invent something you can do well, it's true, isn't it? You know, I mean, look at the size of his hands. You know, yeah. you, you wouldn't expect someone uh, who was whose life was geared to that to come up with something as brilliant and devastatingly brilliant as the method feeder, because it is. It, it's devastating. The, the thing about it is, Keith, like with all methods, they are constantly evolving. Yeah. They're, they're changing. There's new feeders coming out. There's new ways of catching the fish. The, I come up with, I'm, I'm, I would say I'm, quite a real thinker when it comes to the fishing how i can make my presentation better how i can catch more fish 
And these little adaptations I do with my feeders make a massive difference. And I know that for a fact. So it's very rare I'll actually use a feeder straight from a shelf off the shop uh, from a shop. I would I will let's say for example a hybrid feed I glue all the holes up because to me it's common sense to think that if that feed is landing the right way on the surface those little holes are immediately creating a massive jet of water forcing the bait out of your feeder a lot quicker. Yeah. So I glue the holes up to protect my bait. Little things like that make a big difference and in a way, I'm sure you've heard this before all for all the years of fishing, that feeder fishing seems to have this stigma attached to it. You just took a feeder out. But actually, it is a real art form. A sleeper. Pleasure anglers have a sleeper rod and it's a feeder. <laughs> they float fish with their that's what they call it. They float fish with their real rod and they've got yeah. a sleeper rod down the side. Oh, the bell's ringing. Here we go. And they catch 20 fish on the feeder, none on the float. And, and or, or one or two on the float. Yeah, it's true, though. It, it, it's true. There is so much to it. I mean, the first block-end feeder I ever saw was long before there was anything made, anything like the commercial one today. It was egg-shaped. It was made of solid perspex with holes drilled in it. The bloke was a, a, an, an injection moulder, a bloke yeah. called Bill, Bill Twig. And, and, and he had this thing, and it was devastating, and it was so secret. I was a steward. When I first started fishing, I, was, I wasn't allowed to fish the matches by my club um, because I wasn't good enough so for, for these, these particular days. So I had to be the steward, and each club had to provide a steward. And I was a steward on this, this stretch at Maidenhead, and he was on the wall, all roving matches. He was on the wall, and he caught some days. He had three, three four-foot keep nets joined together to make a 12-foot keep net. And um, he, he, he was a, an unbelievable character. Anyway, he used to use a metal spinning rod called a Ross, Apollo, Apollo Ross. People made paper flash. They made his tube of glass, a tube of the steel spinning rods. And he had one of those, and, and um, I saw him hook a fish. So I walked up to him, and he put the rod on the ground and put his foot on it and refused to wind it in while I was there. So, and it was a barbel. I mean, he eventually landed the barbel, but he wouldn't wind it in while I was there, so I couldn't see his feeder. Eventually, me and my mate got him rip-roaring drunk, nicked some of his feeders and the rest of his feeders. <laughs> true, true, absolutely true. Me and Brian Upton, whose parents hold the old crown in Highgate Hill, absolutely true. We took him to Hurley, went into the Black Boy pub, got him absolutely paralytic, and he carried these feeder in a pillowcase with all his maggots. Wow. And we just went in, nicked two, and we couldn't make anything like it because it was too complicated. But eventually, me and Billy Allen got some Perspex from a model aircraft shop and bought um, a thousand um, hook boxes, the old stead hook boxes, glued the bottom on one end, the top on the other end, and got some lead that we mate used to nick out the ground where he worked for the LEB that wrapped the cables when he took a bit of cable out the ground. And there you go. That was the Block M feed in 1965, maybe, 66. Wow. There you go. Um, so the other thing as well that you've done, and I really want to ask you an important question, I think it's an important question here. Um, you developed hook baits, didn't you, specifically for the method feeder? Yeah. Um, I mean, as we all know, there's, there's so much choice on the market. Um, I'm so simple with my fishing. But do you know what? I think we hear this all the time. Oh, it's simple. It's easy. I'm going to show you this thing. It's simple. Simple. But it's only simple if you've got confidence in it. That's the difference. So when I go fishing, uh, my bait, my side tray is quite, lo it's logical is the right word to use. And uh, as I say, speedy washers, 
we wanted to come up with a new hook bait from Dynamite that was effective for the method feeder, a neutrally buoyant hook bait. Um, and prior to these being developed, my favourite hook bait, without doubt, was Maggot, simply because it was so neutrally buoyant. And I classed then these baits as a coincidence bait, where your hook bait escapes from the feeder, your bait starts breaking around the frame of the feeder, the fish come in, and they might be inches away feeding, sucking in pellets, but because your hook bait is so neutrally buoyant, it's a co coincidence that they suck in your hook bait and you hook the fish. They might not have even noticed that, that your hook bait was there. And that's what we wanted to create with these hook baits, was a neutrally, perfectly balanced, neutrally buoyant hook bait that balances with match hooks sizes. And, uh, and welcome to Speedy Wash this kind of thing. And, and I'm not kidding, Keith. It has elevated my confidence in method feeder fishing to the point where it's the only hook bait I'll put on unless I put a maggot on. Mm. Um, I'm so confident with them. That's all I have on my side tray. So in a way, it makes you a better angler because rather than sitting there thinking, well, shall I try this or try, shall I try that? I'm now thinking, shall I, do I need to be in a different depth or do I need to be fishing further out? Um, it takes one question out of the equation, doesn't it? Exactly, because now I know that I'm using the right hook bait. The fish love them. It blends perfectly with the presentation principle, what I'm trying to achieve. So I don't have to think about, do I need to try this hook bait or that hook bait? You save match time. And that then puts you quite a lot of time in match period ahead of the other anglers. Kevin Nishel always said, you're only catching fish when your bait's in the water. Yeah. He didn't say it like that, and he used a few extra words, but that was um, yeah. <laughs> that, that was the that was the gist of his statement. Yeah, if you right. translated it from the yeah. from the native Lee, I, I was looking at something the other day. I saw a bit um, catch more media, but with Tommy, Tommy Pickering at Lindome with some of Dave Preston's new baits, some of the new Fuca hook baits, yeah. which are critically balanced, if you want to call them that. They're, they're semi semi buoyant, yeah. and they were all in one pot: white, yellow, red different colours, all in one pot. And I immediately thought, is flavour and texture important or is it merely the colour? Because you hear about zig rigs, big carp anglers catching enormous carp and some giant bream and tench too, fishing a bait four foot under the surface in 12 foot yeah. of water that is basically a piece of black foam. And black is what's most visible underwater, apparently. So sometimes they use yellow ones, and Kevin Nash made these zig bugs that look like insects, which you know wouldn't naturally be swimming three foot under the water in in in, in a lake. Um, and I've, I've and I've thought this for some time: is it what they taste like, or is it what they look like? And and I'm leaning all the time more towards the look like rather than taste like. Do you find any difference with flavours when you're 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 doing your thing. I know you've got to make other flavours because you only sell one. You only sell 10% of the bait you sell now. So you want to make as you want to make as many variations as it's possible to do because people will buy them all. Like I well, do. Well, I am so glad you've mentioned this because this was an education to me. So, you know, this is five five years ago now when we were developing the washers. Now, leading up to the development of these washers, I've always been a big believer. It's all about feed and presentation. Additives, yeah, they'll catch the odd fish, but it's how you feed that bait and how you present that bait, which is the kudos of the different the, the the difference in level of angling ability. 
So we use Woosburg Reservoir as the testing ground for these baits. Now, what I'm going to tell you now will always stick in my head um, regarding how important additives are. So what we found, we found, and I cannot tell you what the additive is, but it's in all of the washers, regardless of the colour. But whatever colour we had this additive in, that was the best colour on the day. It was like night and day. So let's say, for example, this additive was in the pink on this particular day, and we'd be sat there with the yellow, catching very, the odd fish. Right, let's catch fish now. Let's put a pink on. Chuck out. Within seven to ten minutes of casting out on a method feeder, it was where I was like, go around and get a carp. It was that predictable. So then we use that additive in all the colours. And now this is where you learn an awful lot from the crossover between the match anglers and the carp anglers. Absolutely. So within the development of dynamite baits, you've got the likes of David Spence. <coughs> what they don't know about carp fishing isn't worth knowing. Uh, about how certain additives alter the pH level of the water around your bait and create this aroma, this irresistible aroma. And the best way he explained it to me was, let's say, for example, you've been out for some food, you've had a lovely meal, and you're walking home, and you walk past a fish and chip shop, and all of a sudden you get that whiff of fish and chips, and all of a sudden you think, do you know what? I might just nip in and get some chips. I, you know, I won't mind some chips, actually. That is what certain additives do to the fish they make they change the metabolism of the fish and increase the appetite mm. uh, and that was literally it was such an education for me that keith you know mm. now one thing i don't do is i don't have a side tray of additives but i make sure that i always have those washers on my side because that isn't excuse me that is my confidence booster mm. i know that i've got the right additive that wherever i go it seems to work Mm. Do you know what I used to do? And and I stopped doing it because you stopped doing these things. I used to anoint my hands with a flavour because I believe rather than add an additive, add a flavour, I want to take away the taste of human. I couldn't agree with I don't more. care about cigarettes. I don't care about smoking. I don't care about filling your car up with diesel, petrol, whatever you use. Don't care anything about scratching your armpits. I don't care about what that smell is. But humans smell. If they didn't, when you were upwind of a deer, it wouldn't know you were there. And and all everything is afraid of humans because we eat everything. Yeah. So if you could, and it's a natural instinct in all fish, in all animals, they don't like human beings. Yeah, that's so true. If, if you can remove that smell, and I once uh, I was approached by a company, a chemical company, and and we developed a hand wipe, and it was like a small bottle with a sponge on the top. And you just wiped it on your hands, I rubbed your hands together, and it was done. And they couldn't market it because the chemical, the flavour, the, the the aroma, the material that they used wasn't developed for cosmetic purposes. Right. It was food grade. You could eat it, you could drink every bit of it, but it wasn't developed for cosmetics and it would have cost over £10,000 to license for cosmetic use. Wow. I've still got a bottle of it somewhere. And, and this, right. this particular I... one, well, this particular one smells like cherry tunes. It, it, it smells like that. Uh, but this is, uh, yeah, but th this, that, that isn't the ingredient. The ingredient is something else, but the, the flavour, because if you don't make something smell, no one will buy it. 
That's true. A friend of mine, Jim, Jim Rawcliffe, who owns Tails at Bates, he makes Bates for sale. I think he sold the business there, but he used to make Bates for sale. And his liver mino was massive down here and it stunk of liver. But when he showed you the Bates he used, it didn't smell at all. Yeah. But the right ingredients in it. Right yeah, that's true. I'll tell you the other, the, the flip side to that, Keith, is also the smell of fish. So, and I'm sure you can relate to this. I used to do a lot of bloodworming in the winter, especially on the same for the Kidby Canal. And you'd be catching a lot of roach. Roach would chuck fish in a single bloodworm or even joker. And you'd be going through a runway, you know you're going to be dropping that rig in and you, it's going to be going under a roach. You'd unhook a roach and the bloodworm, there would be perfect. no. It would be perfect. You'd unhook the roach, you'd put it in the net, you'd think, well, there's nothing up with that. You'd chip back out and it wouldn't go yeah, under. If you did, if it did, it was one this big. It was a little tiny weenie. That's one. right. No. Do you know, I, I, and I showed someone exactly that yesterday. I was at, at Get Hooked on Fishing Lakes and waiting for the, the class to arrive that we had, a, a class from a, a, a summer camp, and I was fishing hemp and tares. Right? Now, you, these, these fish have never seen hemp and tares, by the way, and put a maggot on next to it, you don't catch anything. You catch your rud on the drop, put hemp on, you catch quality roach and, and, and really nice, beautiful-looking fish. Never been to keep nets, so they all look perfect. And I said, well, I caught a roach. I said, look at that tear, it's perfect. So went in, didn't get a bite. Didn't get a bite. Took it off, put another one, went in, got a bite straight back, got a roach. Yeah. I said, right, that one's perfect still. Drop that back in, didn't get a bite. Change it, get a bite. And these tears are going off. They, they smell like pickling vinegar. But yeah. they, it, and the fish must lick them. You know, it was an old old trick of mine. If somebody put down a tray of biscuits, I'd pick one up, I liked to lick it, put it on a plate yeah. so no one would get it, so I could have three or four quick. And and um, and it must be the same with fish, but you, you that's I, I first noticed that in the mid-1980s, maybe a bit later than that, when I used to fish bloodworm matches on the Regents Canal in London. And people thought I had to switch to Joker to catch it, you know, but you don't, you just don't put a licked bloodworm on. Yeah, it's fantastic. fantastic you revealed that because it is, as I say, I just showed someone just yesterday exactly the same four meters of pole, roach a chuck, put on a, a no chew, don't mark on What's mark, What can I mark on a tear? They can't stun it, can they? It's a bit of seed. Yeah. And it looks exactly the same as all the other tears in the box. <laughs> you get little digs and probably liners, but you couldn't get float cut under. But now you relate that information to our style of fishing now on commercials. So when I'm banding a pellet, I will always put a fresh pellet on when I'm yep. banding. Yep. It's only on certain specific venues where you know it's ridiculously solid and you're going out and you're slapping your rig and you're getting a fish very quickly that I will keep a caster fishing, banding a caster. I'll try and keep that caster on for as long as possible because it's about the noise and the grabbing it, the snapping at it as it yep. hits the surface. But actually, if a fish has got time to inspect that bait, always a fresh bait in my head, always. Yep. A little bit off piece now. Have you ever tried that with false casters? It's. Do you know what? Well, I haven't because I would. I've always wanted to, but we're not allowed to. This yeah. is a problem. Oh, um, I haven't. It don't work. Have you? Oh, mate, I did it, and I could not. I was getting a roach six inches deep every time I put in, splashing the rig on. Wait two or three seconds. We. I'd have a roach. It was a. It was a match on a carp fishery where carp weren't allowed. Yeah. And I had some Drennan rubber casters and there's another company that made them as well. So there were different buoyancies. Yeah, ESP did them, I think. And I put one on Mm. and, you know, I Enterprise Bait, that's who it was. I put another one on 
enterprise tackle. Well, not enterprise, but it's enterprise tackle. And I could not, you'd get, as I say, the odd little, they'd come up and take, spit it out. Yeah. Now, when they're feeding like that, you would think it's just random and they wouldn't yeah, know. that's right. No, yeah. no, never. I, I, honestly, I had 18 pound of roach and I never had one on an artificial cast. Not one. And I, and I remember those artificial casters. When you were to actually look at one, you'd think, you know what? They're brilliant. They yeah, look absolutely yeah. perfect. Yeah. yeah. On the downside, though, on, on the other side of the page, they really work when you want to catch fish like big tench using bunches of maggots or casters, because if you put two of those on and two real maggots, you won't get a roach. Yeah. In my experience. And yeah, I've had so it plenty. Helps you select the right fish. Exactly. I've had plenty of, of tench and bream when I've been fishing for tench and bream in roach-infested waters yeah. because you don't catch the roach, so they're great for big fish anglers. Yeah, brilliant. I don't yeah. want to run anybody down making baits, but that is true. You know, and, big, and big fish don't seem so, so fussy. This is the interesting thing about this sport, that it, it evolves and changes so much. And yeah. we could literally sit and talk for fish, about fishing forever, but <laughs> never, actually, never actually come to a conclusion at the end. No, of no. It. Well, it's all about opinions, isn't it? There isn't, it's, yeah. it's one of the most imperfect of sciences. It's all about opinions. And, and you can have people just... They'll be listening to this and go, well, a load of old crap. I used the same maggot and caught 73 fishing the other day. And there are times when, when there's no rules. The, the, the only rule is there are no rules. And, and it's, yeah, it's amazing. So so we, we, we've been through your baits and we've been through your, your, your tackles. I know you helped develop with Shimano, the short feeder rods for close-in work and et cetera, et cetera. Um, I've only ever known you. As an individual angler, did, did you go through the team stage like I did? That's a good question. I, I mean, I've fished for Barnsley. I've fished for Barnsley Blacks for 12 years now. Um, prior to that, actually, I did quite a bit of team fishing. Um, in my early 20s, uh, we won the Division Three National Hands of Angling Centre. But do you know what, Keith? Um, I, I, I'd say what the sour point for us was as a team was we won the Division Three National on the New Junction Canal and the Stainford for Kidby. So we did brilliantly um, over the moon. So now we're in the Division Two National on the West Fendrain, the Sinsel Dyke, uh, no, the West Fendrain, the Sipsy Trader, the Hob Hole, and I've forgotten what the other drain was. Um, and we ended up having to pick two anglers for the team, for the National, that hadn't even been down and practised. Yet we'd spent a full week down there practicing every day. And we ended up having to carry them on points. And then it makes you think, you know what? I'd rather just do individual fishing because it's your your own effort is rewarded. Yep. And, and that's how I looked at that. And it might be selfish, but I think it's a realistic opinion if you're not in a, a proper a really dedicated squad. Now I've fished Barnsley for 12 years and as bizarre as it sounds, I fished the odd match for them, but I'd rather do individual fishing. Um, I get more reward. I get more satisfaction out of it. And I'm so honoured to fish for Barnsley, but I just enjoy individual fishing. I always have them. We'll go on um, a bit because I want to talk about the venues that you like and your favourite venues, etc., etc. But, when you, when you talk about that um, team situation, my team fishing revolved around if I wasn't in a team, 
I wouldn't have the incentive to go and fish a match on the Thames when there's four foot of water on and, and you know, your car's cracking the puddles as it goes down the road. But because it's a team match, you put your team head on and you go and you look for that one bite, which is probably going to be a pound and a half chub. And, and, and you know, you've got more chance of catching a chub than a bleak. So you, you go out and you put that head on and do it. Something like you, oh, I'm not going to enjoy it today. So what, what my mate Dickie Carr called a disenjoyable day. You, you wouldn't go out on one of those. So, so team no. fishing got, got me fishing. But now you mentioned the advent of commercial fishing. And I'm going to ask you your favorite, what your favorite venue is. With commercial fisheries, there is rarely a bad day. And by bad, I mean, not, if, if you're not going to get many bites, there's probably not going to be many, fish, many people fishing or not many matches on because there are usually plenty of bites to be caught because of the way they're managed and, 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 and presented to you. That's very true. Um, however, I think regardless of the venue, especially in the winter, it's still very challenging. Um, you know, as bizarre as it sounds, this winter... In the Winter League at Lindome, 10 matches, I blanked on two of the matches. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I still managed to win the Winter League. Yeah. Um, but I think commercial fishing has this stigma attached to the people that don't understand what it's about, that you sit on a puddle and you catch a load of fish. There's still a way of catching those fish. And uh, in the, this winter, especially, you know how bad the weather's been. We've had days where maybe 15, 20 pounds won a match. Yeah, and I'm not kidding, Keith, and you'll completely comprehend this. God knows how many fish are actually in front of you. Um, how do they get out of the way when your feeder goes through them? Because there are millions. Yeah, exactly. And <laughs> and I remember, a few. you'll love this story, a few years back, um, we got the new Shimano sports camera, which was waterproof. And I was in an open match on the bonsai, and I won the match with £134, literally shipping out at 14 metres, and, and they all started from when the match, before the match started, I plummeted up. And I was like moving around, dragging my plummet around. I noticed that there was a lot of fish in front of me. So my plan was just to fish like three quarters depth with bread and a corn skin. And a corn skin in the winter is absolutely deadly when you're looking for fish. Anyway, cut a long story short, call day. I had 130 odd pound, won the match. And out of curiosity, after the match finished, I thought, I want to put my camera in to see what is actually below and you just wouldn't believe how many fish were there and they were all hurdled together um the camera was literally going past fish and they were like literally so close to each other just dormant and of course you'd only need one of those fish to move and then they all move yeah so the camera would hit one of the fish as i was lowering it in and then it all start moving around then um and that's how fishing works and it amazes you that there are a lot of fishing commercials, but you've got to do something to trigger them into feeding. Feeding, yeah, that feed, the trigger is a good word. Yeah, that's, that's, what, that's what you've got to do. So is Lindon then your favourite venue? I know you spend a lot of time there and you've done a lot of work there. Is it, is it your favourite? <sighs> if From I was to pick... perspective I'm talking about. Yeah, I'd say, yeah, it is. I'd say if I was to pick a venue that, you know, if, right, you can only go to one venue, where would it be? It would be Lindon. However... I love all styles of fishing. And as my favourite venue, as bizarre as it sounds, by a million miles, but unfortunately we can't fish it anymore, is Clumber Park. Oh, yeah. Now, Clumber Park's not a match venue. And I'm although I'm a serious match angler, I love every aspect of fishing. And Clumber Park, to me, is medicine. It's fishing medicine. You go there, I could quite easily go there and not get a bite. 
But if I get a bite, it's going to be a double-figure bream. Mm-hmm. That, to me, is what fishing is about. As much as I love competing and doing well and figuring things out for matches, that, to me, is special. Mm-hmm. So it's how you... Um, how you look at fishing, you know, do you, do you look at fishing as regards to, a, a, from a match angler's point of view, or do you do you want to go there and enjoy yourself and enjoy the peace and quiet and the nature? And if you get a bite, it's a bonus. For years, a- that, you're, you're absolutely right. For years, I thought that me against the fish was a bit unfair. You know, I could go down to the Thames here, pleasure fishing, and catch a dace literally every throw-in. Yeah. I might wait 20 minutes for the first one. And it was one every throw and I'll get bored. Yeah. Or I could go up the road to Kingston and catch a bream every throw in. Yeah. I could go to Kingston and catch a roach every throw in. Pleasure fishing. I could go to Gold Valley and get carp yeah. one after the other or roach or whatever I decided to fish for. And then I thought, I want to try and catch a carp out of tidal Thames. There's a few in there. They're not easy to catch. You have to fish properly for them. And put an entirely different aspect on my fishing. And to be fair, I'd catch one and come home. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have went all night or anything like that. But I'd pick the optimum time when the tide was right, when the flow was right, when there wouldn't be too many boats. And I'd go down there and I had a swim where I used to go and catch a carp and another swim where I'd go and try to catch a barbel and, and succeed in certain instances. A couple of years ago, I tried to catch a two-pound roach, never made it. I got a couple of big ones, but I didn't get any two-pounders. Complete, I mean, fishing for roach with 20-pound coated braid hook lengths, a size 10 or kind of 15 mil boily. Wow. Um, because if you fish anything else, you'll catch smaller ropes. You fish bread, right. you'll catch roach up to a pound. Fish maggots, you'll catch them up to 10 ounces. Rarely catch a pound on a maggot. Rarely catch a pound and a half on bread. In the winter, you might. But if you want to catch a two-pounder, and that's Terry Hearn's fault because he's got a boat opposite and he used to throw, throw loads of, um, of, of, of his bait in. Of, of, Lady, per- Lady Pearl. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Lady Pearl, he'd throw loads of bait in. And, and that got... The, the carp and the bream eating the bait, probably pooing it out, and it got the bigger fish eating what they yeah. couldn't digest. And, and, yeah, that was it. So it was all going down there and fishing with with, uh, with red robin boilies. What, what, what was your biggest carp on the – what was your biggest carp you've had on the Thames? At the Tidal, £19.6. Wow. Old, beautiful. Old bru- beautiful. An old bruiser of a common. Um, I, the smallest one I had was about £6. Um, I've had some really weird-looking carp out of there, you know, that, that have been – um, in there for a long time and, 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 and been bashed up by all sorts of things, not by anglers, by, by living there. And, yeah, my, my biggest was only £19.6. But it didn't matter because you don't know how big they are when the rod goes round um, and, and you, you can't judge how big they are. You know, if I put a 30mm boilie on, I can catch a roach because it will take the hook where it's, it, it's, um, it, it's hair rigged to the boilie. So, yeah, but that was me because I, I did have a barber probably the best fish down there, I had a barbell exactly weighed exactly 11 pounds. That was, that was a nice fish. And they're, yeah. they're quite scarce on this bit of the Thames, barbell that size. Special very, They're very scarce. Very, very special fish, mate. Yeah. So yeah. That, that, that was, anyway, this is, this is but, my but job. Going, I'm, going, I'm the interviewer here, not you. Going back to uh, Lindo, <clears throat> do you know there's a lot of venues around um, but without doubt, I could go to Lindome and never get bored of going. I've been fishing Lindome now for 15 years, 15 years now. And I tell you what, it's so versatile. Every lake's different. Every How you approach every lake is different. And to me, that's a real chat. I never, ever get bored of the place. Yeah. It's so interesting. It keeps your head ticking. Uh, I run a feeder league in the winter. 
um, on a Tuesday and you've got the likes of Tommy Pickering, Alan Scottle and Emma Pickering, Lee Kerry, um, a really a, tr- a really good attraction of some really good anglers, but also it's so popular because you just don't know what to expect. Every, you, and I suppose this is a very valid point with fishing in general. You could fish the same peg 10 times on the bounce, but have a completely different result every single time. And that to me is what Lindholm Lakes is about. And that's yeah. why I love it so much. Now, now this year, um, at last you, you've done it. You've won a big one. Yeah. Um, <laughs> close, but no cigar a couple of times. Yeah. But this year you actually, you actually made it. And I know how pleased you were because I read all your social media about it. Just, just tell us about your, what happened there. Yeah. Uh, well, the golden rod final. I mean, <clears throat> to be honest with you, it was how I qualified, which was even more bizarre, because I qualified uh, at Boddington's. So I think it was my fifth qualifier. I missed qualifying on my first qualifier at Hawcroft by five or six pounds, and I was gutted because I lost the carp. Um, anyway, so fifth qualifier now. I'm at Boddington's. I'm driving down. The, the, the Boddington's had been really low prior to Christmas, and then all of a sudden a massive influx of water it's risen straight to the top and all of a sudden the carp aren't feeding. And I've joined peg three on the damn wall and I've had three roach for three pound and I've won the 20 peg zone. And I, t- and I tell you what, Keith, and I'll never forget this second cast in, I've had a drop back and fishing. I started at 80 meters and I've had a drop back and on a washer, speedy washer. And I've up this fish, you know, it's a blooming roach. And I've literally, as I'm reeling in, I've swung it to my chest and it's a roach about 12 ounce. And I'm thinking with nuisance fish, you know, put it in the net. I'll, I'll, get, I'll get a carp next, Chuck. Nobody caught a carp in our zone and I had three roach and one in the zone with three pound. So that was surely a sign, wasn't it? Yeah. Your name's on it then. <clears throat> anyway, so the final, um, and I've been in the final twice before and I've won the match on one of the days, but done terrible on the other. I always felt it was a bit of a nemesis that I would never get over that brow of the hill. So on the first day, uh, I think we all need a bit of luck in these big finals. And I drew in the middle section and halfway through the match, I had four skimmers, four or five skimmers for six, seven pound. Sat there thinking, I really do need, I really need to make this last hour count. I've got a wind hitting my bank. It was an easterly wind. I'm in the middle of the Burbank on the Speciolate, for those of you that know it. Is it last? At Larford Lakes. At Larford Lakes. And in the area where if I do catch carp down the edge, these are the pegs, so to speak. Anyway, so with 40 minutes to go now, I've still only got three or four skimmers for five, six, six, seven pound. I'm well down in the section. So I've fed my margins down the edge. Uh, And I've dropped in over the top of baiting up. Literally, you bait up and then you drop your feeder in straight over the top because they're on your bait. If they're going to come, they'll be on it straight away. And I've hooked this carp and it snagged me up. So the tip's gone round. I've hooked this big carp and my line's got caught around, whether it be a boulder or something underneath the water. So I had to walk down my peg, undo the, untether the line. And as I've wound straight down, because at this time of the year, they don't fight that hard. So I wanted to get it in as quickly as possible. So I've immediately sat back on my box, wound straight down to it. And as I've wound down, I could feel all the, the line grating on my runners. <clears throat> and I thought, oh my God, I cannot lose this fish. This fish is crucial. 
Anyway, cut a long story short then, I'm panicking, so I've taken my time and it's took me a while to land it, but I've got it in the net. And I'm not kidding, it was about 18, 19 pounds. It's a beautiful fish. And I'm not kidding, Keith, about a metre and a half, half up from a method feeder, all the line was all shredded. And I've literally just snapped it like cotton in my hands. Anyway, I've got the fish, happy days. I'm now sitting there thinking, right, I'm winning the section. And luckily, with five minutes to go, I've had another car that was £26. And I'm not kidding, Keith. When I hooked it, when I, I, I literally, the tip's gone around, I've hooked into it, and the whole rod's just locked up. And I thought, oh, my God, this is enormous. And it took me two attempts to get it in the landing net because of how it turned, how it come to the surface. It, 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 its head was away from its tail. Yeah. What a stunning fish. It was a big common, 2611, but I literally beached it onto the grass bank when I, when I landed it. It was enormous. Yeah. So that's it. Won the section. And then the second day, I didn't draw that. Brilliant. Um, and I drew on the match late. Neil McKinn was on peg one. There was another bloke uh, to my right on the other end peg. And, and on paper, it was, I'm looking realistically at third in the section. It had come for, the end pegs had come first and second in the section on the day before. And I thought, I just can't win it. You know, the best I can get is third in the section. And this is why you never say never with fishing. Because halfway through the match, I, I looked at the weather the day before. It was really high air pressure but we had a really bad frost. Now, the day before, it was quite a milder day, um, and a lot of fish were getting caught down the margins because the water level at Larford was quite high. So this, the fish seemed to want to feed on the grass, if that made sense. Yeah. Whereas that really cold night, it made the water really clear. So we got up in the morning, and I couldn't believe how clear the water was. So immediately I'm thinking, right, I'm going to fish in the deep water today. And I'm going to save for as long as possible my margin line, whereas everybody was fishing down the margins for the majority of the day because that's how it worked the day before. And this is why you never, you never fish the same peg twice. So I've caught literally fishing at four or five metres in the deeper water, and with half an hour to go, I've then fed margins with ground bait to create a cloud. And that cloud in that clear water, I'm convinced, helped bring them in. And I've had yeah. three, I've had three down the edge in the last half hour. So. I ended up winning my section, and I'm not kidding, Keith. The end peg I was convinced he'd beat me. So I had 10 for 48 pound, but he had seven for 46 pound. And when um, Phil Briscoe read his weight, and it seemed like an eternity, he's holding the scales up and he's looking at them. And I'm thinking, just call it out, just call it out. And he goes, 46 pound, I'm like, get in. <laughs> so uh, at last, I've kind of like achieved it, you know, and I. I've won a lot in my time, but I always felt I was one of these anglers that I'd never win a big event. But then when you actually win one, you think, right, I can win another now. Yeah. I can, I, I, it's possible. I can actually do it. You know what I mean? So Same applies if you're second, you know, because I've been second in some big matches and I've been second in a lot of them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah the, yeah, the same rule applies. Yeah, yeah it's true. Yeah. Um, so, so would you, and it's, too soon to say yet, I suppose, because it's still, you don't have to remember it very long. But do you think that will go down as your most memorable match? Or have you got one that, that you can say now, listen, I will never, ever better this? Never say never. But at this present time, that was, yeah, I fished a perfect weekend. He's yeah. very, you can't, he's, 
I, I think it's a very bold statement to say that in fishing. But as far as me as an individual, that's the best weekend in my fishing career regarding how it, you know, when your name's on it, your name's on it. And yeah. that that line, how that line didn't break with that carp. But do you know what? As bizarre as it sounds, I only needed that. That one 26-pound carp was all I would have needed to win the section anyway. I had 59 pounds. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it was a perfect weekend for me. And I never missed a bite, and I never lost a fish in the 10 hours fishing. Wow. Now, I, I know... Um, and yeah, forgive me if I'm wrong, but I, I think I'm right in saying you don't mind a little bit of a wind up. Um, now, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, listen. What, what's, what's, your, what's your the one that you consider not carried out on you? Obviously, um, which which one do you think could probably be the best? Uh, it would all well. There's a there's one that happened actually at White Acres last week, um, but um, without doubt, Tommy Pickering. Have you heard the story? Well, it doesn't matter if I have. Well, this is brilliant. So I, I, I don't do it anymore, but when I was a bit younger and it was a red hot day, I used to love going for a swim after the match. Um, well, anyway, I'm next pegged to Tommy on the, I think it's about the third day of the spring festival at Lindome Lakes. And he's next pegged to me. And it was a boiling hot day. And I'm, I'm thinking, do you know what? I've got to get him. So now we're packing up and he's loading his van up and all he's got is his box and his side tray. So I got in the water and I, I crawled underneath the water, to underneath his foot plate that's protruding out from the platform. And now I'm underneath his tackle uh, seat box foot plate and I could see him just putting all his tackle away in his car. You know what Tommy's like? He's come down and he's leant and put his hand on the seat while he's gathering all the rubbish from his side tray. And I've literally just sprung out of the water and gone, hello! <laughs> and I'm not kidding. I, I was a bit worried because I thought I'd given him a heart attack. Because he was literally on the he was literally on the bank hyperventilating for about 10 minutes. Because you just don't expect some weirdo to come jumping out of the water. Exactly. No. Um, and uh, yeah, that was absolutely brilliant. But we also I also got the Welsh lads last week. Look, you know, I'm just a bit of a... I, I always try to make the most of a situation. Um, and if there's an opportunity there for me to to scare somebody or, or pull a prank on somebody, I will do it. And the Welsh lads next door at Whiteacres, we'd, they'd left the lodge open. Oh. So so myself and Alex Doherty went into the lodge and we rubbed chilies all over the door handles, <laughs> all over the kettles, all over the toothbrushes. Um, didn't hear anything that evening. And then the following morning, I got a text from Mikey Williams. It's Mikey Williams, uh, Andy Crocker, John Harvey. Uh, and he sent me a message swearing, saying, you blah, 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 you've you put chilli on my toothbrush. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's not a bad one. Oh, yeah. I'll, I'll have to remember that, yeah. Um, who's your favourite person to draw next to? That's a good question, actually. Uh, Alan Scotton. A, because I enjoy beating him, and B, because I like winding him up. <laughs> oh, he's not easy to wind up, is he? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. And he, he's, 
He's such a dour, phlegmatic char- character. Oh, he's, he's, he's funny beneath it, but it, it, it doesn't always show at the time, does it? I, I love it when he makes a little whimsy and does that chuckle to himself. But he's, he's that's um, you know, that, that, that's not bad. Old five times, get next to five this, times. This, and give him a bit. this is why he, he is who he is and what he's achieved because he's so competitive. And he gives everything into fishing. He gives it a hundred ten percent, but he's so easy to wind up. So yeah, character. And I speak to Alan on a weekly basis. I always have done. I've got a lot of time for Alan. Yeah, me but, too. I like yeah. Alan. Yeah. yeah. Who do you least like drawing next to then? Who is there? Someone that not not because of their their character or anything. Like, I'm not. I'm not asking you to, to to character shame anyone. But someone who, when you draw next to him, it's always a crap day. A nemesis, a nemesis, and I tell yeah. you, what, you know, do you know what, uh, Gary Jubb? Yeah, I know Gary. Yeah, Gary I remember, Jubb. Him from, I remember him from his old um, Goldthorpe days. Gary Jubb is like a nemesis to me. Whenever I draw next to him, he always beats me. Does he? You know, but it's not just. I'm talking ounces. Yeah, he, all the time. He's he, in. Literally, I thought he cost me winning the winter league because, as bizarre as it sounds, just backtracking to the Golden Rod final. On the same day, I then found out that I won the Winter League three years on the bounce at Lindo. Not being Plains. there. Yeah, you won it by not, won it by not being there. No. By not being there. And and we had one round and he Gary was next to me and he beat me by about two ounces uh, for second in the section. I, he won the section, I was second. And I thought that's going to cost me winning the Winter League that. But luckily it didn't. But yeah, he's, he's always been a nemesis to me, Gary Judd. But He's another angler that's been around on the scene for years. Well, I'm talking about the the 90s when I knew him at Goldthorpe because I used to, Nottingham was my area and I used to go and see Russ and all that Goldthorpe tackling and Gary was there when he invented his method to catching rope. Ding, ding. The ding, ding, exactly that. Yeah, Yeah, when he invented that. Yeah, that was, yeah, that was, that was a a good, don't tell anybody, he said. (laughs) And you're the first person I've told. (laughs) <laughs> very very clever angler Gary very yeah. clever and unique in his way of fishing he does things very unique yeah you know I, I think although you may not have bumped into him very much Kim Milson was a bit like that as well yeah. Kim, yeah. Mil- Kim Milson in his own way and, and you looked at him and think how can you ever catch a fish like that yeah, yeah. <laughs> you never caught more than him did you he was one of those people yeah. you never beat uh, well but- match, match, match fishing Dave Wesson interviewed me a, a few months back at Woodsbury and uh, we did like a bit of a video 10 minutes with Nick Speed questions mm-hmm. and one of the questions was name three of your anglers that you idolise the most and Kim Molson was one of them because yeah. as a young kid uh, I always looked up to Kim because he was so methodical and unique in his way of fishing absolutely absolutely yeah yeah. and, and I always I've, I've got to say I know many people that didn't I was going well with Kim. I think you know I respected him, and 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 it was. But well, he, he gave me a tub in one day at Medley, and I didn't often get tubbed at Medley, but it wasn't in the main river; it was in the channel, so that doesn't yeah. count. And I did lose a great big fish as well. But anyway, proper, yes. uh, it was a, it was a proper marmite angler, wasn't he? Yeah. Oh yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, there's there's a few about, but he he was one, and he divides opinion. And I think now he's gone, and he's senior bird watching ranger or manager or something on on, on the Cotswold Water Park. He, he does. Yeah. He's now a bird watching person, and yeah, great. Um, as a feeder angler, do do you have any ambitions to fish maybe for England in the feeder team? I would now. Um, I, I to be honest with you, Keith, when it all first kicked off, I did have the opportunity, but I didn't pursue it enough, and I didn't put enough passion into it enough to let them know that I really wanted to represent the country. 
I fished uh, for the European feed of champs and I ended up fourth. I actually lost a bream that cost me becoming European champion. And that was kind of like the, the, the open invitation, the door for me that I closed on myself really, because I ended up just moving, you know, we, I ended up seeing somebody in Ireland for a few years and I got distracted. Um, but actually, yes, my, my, cha- my frame of mind has changed with that now. Um, so yeah, that is my next kind of like goal. And I don't think I'll ever get into the squad now because it's so strong. Maybe I might, I don't know if I, if I work hard, but also I'm now thinking about the, the vets feed the team. Yeah. Oh, that's, there's going to be a vets feeder team, is there? I'm getting on. I'm getting on a bit, mate. Yeah. No, I, I wasn't. I wasn't disputing that. I was. <laughs> <laughs> I was just wondering. Although you are one of those people that that have nobody could ever guess your age to within ten years, I think, only by luck. Um, and in fact, I I helped a lady in a supermarket on Monday. She couldn't reach the top shelf. She was not very tall. So I reached up and got her a. a char suey or whatever it is she wanted and gave it to her i said see it's, it's a benefit you've got that at my age now i struggle to get stuff off the bottom shelf but i can easily reach you off the top. <laughs> like, i bet i'm older than you yeah. and i said i will bet any i had a mask on i said i will bet any money you like you're not and she said well i'm 65 so i showed him my bus pass brilliant <laughs> absolutely brilliant right that's we nearly nearly at the end What's the next big event in your sights? You know, you, you, you've got the Golden Rod, so for show, Golden yeah, Rod, Feed the Masters, for show. You're having a go this year, are you? Yeah, and, and that's that's true. I, I occasionally buy a ticket for Fisho, but I never really make it a main campaign. Whereas, like I said, I've been in the Maver match this final the last two years, and I, don't get me wrong, it's a very prestigious event, but um, I'd rather try my best to get in the Fishermania now mm. and now as you know I've, I've been in the final once before but it's an event I really want to win mm. um, so that is my main aim this year and the Feeder Masters uh, and as a matter of fact I've actually got a qualified tomorrow at Larford Lakes for the Feeder mm-hmm. Masters yeah. and then I come back from Larford Lakes and then in France filming for a couple of days from Sunday to Monday uh, so I'm looking forward to that so like I said earlier you have to decide on what you're going to target and um, my main aim this year is Feeder Masters Fishermania uh, and whatever follows suit after that really mm. but they're my two main events that I want to get into the final alright mate so uh, enjoy your time in France I'm, I'm sure you will uh, the, odd, um, the odd croissant maybe and a drop yeah, of right. a local nectar um, just have a brilliant time and, and um, thanks so much uh, for, for coming on and having a chat to me. I've, I've, I've always enjoyed our conversations. They've not been many and they've been years apart, um, but it's always great to see you and to talk to you and, 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 and keep doing what you do and keep letting us know what you're doing because uh, your social media pages are special, mate. They are to me anyway. And um, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure talking to you, Keith. Thank you. And you too, Nick. And I hope to see you on July the 23rd, is it? Yeah, me too as well. And I hope it's on, on, on an Oxbox, not standing next to me on the pallet. They now give us a studio. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers, mate. Thank you, Thanks Nick. a lot, Keith. Cheers. That was great fun talking with Nick Speed, and let's hope he can make his Fishermania dream come true. Thank you for listening to the Strange Boat Podcast. I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. When you've listened, please like and subscribe so we can keep you up to date when we have a new crew step on board. 
Now from me, Keith Arthur, it's cheers and tight lines. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Helen Lewis, and I want to tell you about a podcast I've made for BBC Radio 4 and BBC Sounds. It's called The New Gurus, and it's about how everywhere you look on the internet, people are giving advice. Advice they claim will transform your life. Advice that gets them thousands, even millions of devoted followers. These online prophets are telling us how to eat, how to think, how to get rich, how to find love, how to manage our time. So how exactly are these gurus changing our lives and the world around us? And who holds them to account? Find out by subscribing to The New Gurus wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com Sports Social Podcast Network Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.